This is episode 202 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Regulation of Stem Cells in the Blood, Dr. Jennifer Trowbridge. Hey everybody, we are Dalon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. As a reminder, we recently aired the Bi-Stem-Tennial 200th episode of the podcast, and to celebrate we're giving away three Stem Cell Podcast Bluetooth speakers. To enter the contest, subscribe to the Stem Cell Podcast newsletter at stemcellpodcast.com slash newsletter by September 30th. Winners will be announced in episode 204, which is airing on October 19th. Today, we have Dr. Jennifer Trowbridge from the Jackson Laboratory on the podcast to talk about her research on the regulation of hematopoietic stem cells in normal development, aging, and leukemic transformation. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, Stem Cell Technologies has been in the field of hematopoietic stem and progenitor research for over 20 years. And during that time, they've learned a thing or two. Visit www.stemcell.com slash hemahub, that's H-E-M-A-H-U-B, for educational resources to help further your research on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. We're going to be starting things off with a paper from a mentor of mine who's been on the show. That's Dr. Paul Burridge from Northwestern University. He knows a thing or two about the hematopoietic system, and he actually did a lot of his doctoral work on HSCs and blood differentiation back in the day. But ever since then, he shifted to the cardiac side of things. He's really well known for his work in cardiac differentiation, improving cardiac differentiation protocols from iPSCs. And lately, he's focused on this area of pharmacogenomics or trying to understand why certain people have adverse drug reactions and other people don't. And in particular, this paper that's titled RARG variant predictive of doxorubicin-induced cardiotoxicity identifies a cardioprotective therapy. This came out in Cell Stem Cell. He's looking at the genetics behind a particular class of chemotherapeutic compounds, that's the anthracyclines, in particular doxorubicin, and trying to understand why some people actually have an adverse cardiotoxic reaction to this drug, whereas other people don't. So what he did is uh, he collaborated with a number of folks who were able to do a genome-wide association study to identify a particular SNP in the retinoic acid receptor gamma, or RARG, gene um, as actually correlated with an increased risk of this anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity. And so what he did is he introduced that particular variant into iPSCs, differentiated them into cardiomyocytes, and saw that in the populations of cells from patients with that SNP or with the CRISPR isogenic line with that particular SNP, those cells are more sensitive to doxorubicin-induced damage, okay? So they took a mechanistic approach to this. They figured out that the mechanism of this RARG variant is actually mediated through topoisomerase, which is a, an important protein uh, involved in the DNA damage response pathway. And also ERK signaling is pretty important too. Uh, and the perhaps the, the, the coolest part of the study is they actually found a way to reverse this patient-specific toxicity and identified and that an RARG agonist 
the CD1530 can actually make the cells better and not die as much. And the thought is they may be able to use this drug that they identified in their in vitro system and give it at the same time that a patient is, is receiving doxorubicin to actually protect that patient from the toxic effects of doxorubicin on the heart. So it's a, it's a really cool study in my opinion. I'm biased, of course, this is sort of one of the things that I'm interested in, the idea of cardio-oncology, the intersection of the heart and cancer and pharmacogenomics, which is looking at why certain people have adverse drug reactions and other people don't. But I, I think the, the really neat part is, you know, you're taking a deep mechanistic dive using iPSCs and iPSC cardiomyocytes and coming out with an actual drug candidate on the, on the other side that can be pushed towards clinical trials to, you know, maybe make these people feel a little bit better when they're receiving doxorubicin, this really known to be toxic chemotherapeutic compound. Yeah, I, I, this is such a, a nice blend, in my opinion, of all the great things about medicine nowadays. There's a scientific part of it in terms of the IPS and the idea of, of, of studying a, a pathology using these specific genetic mutations um, in a really controlled and elegant study. And then there's the other side of it in terms of just, you know, personalized medicine on the back end. Uh, we can screen all these patients and, and say, hey, you know, you, you're, you're going to be uh, uh, at risk for the cardiotoxic effects of doxa. Let's do something else. So I, I, lo I love how this represents this new wave of medicine. I mean, I'm just looking through uh, the, the back end of the paper and it occurs to me, yeah, as, as they mentioned, the limitations here, it, it, it remains to be seen if the uh, reduction in the cardiotoxicity actually might uh, uh, undermine the efficacy of the doxo and the cancer itself. But I doubt it. it seems like just kind of parallel mechanisms there. So I, I mean, you got to dot your eyes before we can get this into clinical practice. Um, but really exciting in terms of trying to uh, save these patients. You know, and I, I hate this idea of cancer survivors having half a life. They, it's that what happens with female cancer survivors with their fertility, you know, they go on their menopause in college. The idea that someone could survive cancer only, only to have their heart failed is, is such a tragic outcome for me. Yeah, absolutely. And the unfortunate reality is this, is that this field is taking off cardio-oncology in part because cancer therapies are just exploding, right? There's so many different types of cancer therapies out there. Even the uh, immunotherapies, and we're, we're going to have a paper focusing on one of the immunotherapies. Immunotherapies also have some adverse cardiotoxic events associated with them. So it's not just small molecules, but it's also the, the biologics too. It's a big problem. Yes, it's a big problem, but we got this new science uh, and, you know, we're talking about this new wave, but I'm going to go back to some old questions here. Also though, in the heart, it's a nice segue. Um, and this is about the vasculature. You know, I love uh, vessels in the blood. And, you know, the vasculature of the heart is arguably the most important vasculature. You know, the heart is just a big muscle that's going to spread all the blood. And it's the primary event you need to grow past those microscopic stages, right? So, arguably, initial vascularization of the heart is the most important thing that, that happens in uh, early embryogenesis. Um, and it's known that that initial vascular plexus is really important for the fetal heart to grow at all, you know, not just because of vascular perfusion, but also there's some angiocrine factors that 
that affect the growth there. Um, but there is a question in terms of when you when you switch from fetal to neonate. Uh, there's a, another bola or burst of vascularization in the heart um, as the inner myocardial wall becomes thickened um, as the trabeculum compa compacts. Um, and it's not really understood exactly where the coronary vessels come from in this process. It's been proposed that uh, the inner myocardial wall gets these new coronary vessels de novo from the endocardial lining of the trabecular crypts. Uh, but there hasn't really been the sufficient lineage tracing analysis of endocardial cells, particularly at these late fetal neonatal stages, right? So, you know, we need to, we need to look if we're gonna, if we're gonna know. Um, and also not just where they come from, but also the, the signaling mechanisms that drive that uh, vascularization of the heart. It's really important. Why? Because we want to know how to revascularize the heart in the adult uh, post-infarct, right? Um, and we know that the neonate has the capacity for heart regeneration that isn't recapitulated in the adult. The neonate looks more like a zebrafish. Um, so this is an open question with a lot of clinical relevance and uh, Bin Zhao's group at uh, Einstein, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, they've done a lot of work, lineage tracing in the heart and endocardium coronary vasculature. And here they generated two new mouse lines that were very high finesse uh, and high specificity insertion, not disrupting the gene. So you can maintain endogenous expression of this natriuretic peptide receptor 3, NPR3, as well as uh, DLL. Uh, four, right? So the, you know, famous notch, uh, notch ligand. Um, and what they showed is that in that late fetal development, um, that coronary plexus, the inner myocardium, uh, it, uh, it in fact does not contribute to, or the vent ventricular endocardium, sorry, does not contribute to the neovascularization at, at neonatal stages of so those new coronary vessels. But in fact, it's, um, cell, it's the pre-existing endothelium in the coronary plexus of the in, inner myocardium that does it. And what they showed uh, mechanistically is that it's mediated by a DLL4 um, notch one signaling. Um, and that's it. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward study, nature cell biology, but I think it's, 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 it's addressing a really important gap in our knowledge, um, as I said, because uh, the heart vasculature is critical. Also, I should note that they showed that the same mechanism um, accounted for the regenerating neonatal heart. So the vasculature at following apex resection of neonatal heart, they are able to get regrowth of the heart has been, has been observed and it was mediated by the same mechanism. So it looks like we might be able to augment or modulate that signaling to perhaps seed um, uh, neoangiogenesis uh, in the context of injury or other pathological defects. So I think a, a nice story that answers an age-old question with I think some degree of, of uh, definity um, or in a definitive manner. Uh, but I don't know, Arun, what do you think? You're, you're, the, you're the guy with all the knowledge on the heart. Tell me, do you think they finally closed the gap here? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great basic science study for sure. Um, I think this is a really hot topic, as you've discussed, the idea of figuring out how the heart is able to vascularize and revascularize itself, and ultimately hoping to you know, harness some of those capacities for revascularization in an adult. This is a huge unmet medical need. I, I think, and this is something they alluded to in the study, there are a few different approaches and a few different hypotheses as to how this is happening. And one other, other person who's also a friend of the show who has done some work on this is, of course, Christy Redhorse, who is an expert on all things uh, vascularization, especially early coronary artery development. I think, um, you know, there, there's still some work that has to be done in terms of figuring out the exact detailed mechanisms of how this is this process is actually happening. A lot of work, you can ask Christy about it. But the thing I've always loved about these studies and particularly this paper, the work that's coming out of Christie's lab is the exquisite imaging that you need to actually do some of these analyses using like lineage tracing, enhanced really deep confocal microscopy to actually figure out how these networks of vascular vasculature are contributing to the overall, you know, formation of the heart and the growth of the heart. It's one of my favorite sub aspects of cardiac biology, just because I'm a sucker for pretty images. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A lot of pretty pictures in this one. And, you know, it, it is, it's worth mentioning that these two mouse lines that they made were very um, precise uh, in terms of not disrupting the endogenous gene expression and also uh, identifying genes um, and timing uh, and all the cassettes, you know, the CREERT2 that they use um, in order to have a very careful control of expression. And while it was used largely in this case to show where the cells were coming from, generate some pretty pictures and have a glancing blowout mechanism, hey, surprise, it involves notch. I mean, no one's surprised there. But um, these same mice, I think, are going to be used by uh, this group and many others um, to, to really unpack some of these mechanistic questions at this critical window, this neonatal window where uh, mice, at least, are capable of heart regeneration. There's, there's a lot there, as you were alluding to, mechanistically to unpack and see if we can leverage that uh, in an in a adult system. Yeah, it's the big time dream in this field. And shifting on from something that's a little basic to something that's quite clinically oriented, I'm going to talk about a, another cell stem cell story that's coming out of a collaborative effort between Fate Therapeutics and also folks at the University of Minnesota. Um, the title of this paper is Harnessing Features of Adaptive Natural Killer Cells to Generate iPSC-Derived NK Cells for Enhanced Immunotherapy. Perhaps our colleagues over at the Immunology Podcast might be covering this as well at some point in the future, but this is a, a neat story talking about these iAdapt natural killer cells that have been developed by Fate Therapeutics. Their whole thing is developing off-the-shelf iPSC-derived natural killer cells. They've got a particular product called FT538, which is actually really good for killing various types of tumors uh, using a, this targeted approach. And they're showing that this FT538 has this really good anti-tumor activity in part because of the way it's generated. It's a really cool triple knockout, uh, knocking out CD38 and overexpressing um, IL-15, IL-15R fusion protein. Uh, it's got a bunch of 
you know, really cool engineering that they've done here to really make these NK cells more effective in terms of how they're targeting different types of tumors. It's, uh, it's like I said, a collaborative effort between Fate Therapeutics and the lab of Jeffrey Miller, the University of Minnesota. Um, they've actually, the, their lab has actually shown that there's a subset of NK cells with memory-like properties that are arising in response to CMV, uh, known as these adaptive NK cells. And this is kind of, you know, a follow-up on all of that basic science that work that's been done in the past and just kind of figuring out why this particular product is so good and doing what it does. So uh, it's not necessarily my area of expertise, but it's something that I'm really excited about when it comes to the power of these immunotherapies and targeting different types of cancers. Um, and like what I talked about in the first paper that I talked in, in the roundup, they're great in some cases, quite good at targeting tumors, but they have some of these other issues with cardiotoxicity, uh, these immunotherapies. So there's definitely more work that has to be done. And in particular, I think the last paper you're going to talk about in the roundup is a type of cancer that still needs a lot of work for, you know, immunotherapy and pancreatic cancer. That's one of the most lethal types of cancers out there. So perhaps some of this, you know, these IPS derived NK cells may be able to be leveraged for that particular cancer and other devastating cancers like it. I think there's a lot of potential in the field. I agree. And I, I'm, I'm the most impressed of all the things in science that I'm like cheerleader for. It's this, this adaptive uh, immune NK or, you know, T cells, whatever it is, it's programming the immune system to go in there and kill cells. I love it because in contrast to, I think the more regenerative therapies that we talk about, the, the cells don't need to hang around. They're mercenaries. You get them in there to do a job and then they can go away. So I, 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 I'm, I mean, I've been you as well. I'm sure I've been very impressed with all of the clinical outcomes that have been emerging from this field, uh, largely speaking. And, you know, notwithstanding some of the remaining issues, as you alluded to with cardiotoxicity and cytokine storm and all that, this story, I think, really points toward the, the way that we can get around these problems, this engineering, and, you know, with the ease of use that we have all these CRISPR and all the, the derivatives thereof, I think that making the cell work for us is only going to get easier as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not something that's exclusive to Faith Therapeutics, of course. The other companies are doing this kind of work too, like Sonnet Therapeutics. Even Chuck Murray at the ISCR had talked about these custom cell lines that they generated with these multiple CRISPR knockouts that are able to uh, generate cardiomyocytes that are more able to safely integrate to the heart, right? So I think there's a natural way for iPSCs and CRISPRs, CRISPR to intertwine and marry together uh, to, to take these cell therapy-based approaches to the next level. Absolutely. Um, and getting back to what you, uh, you know, segued me into there with the pancreas, I have a last story here is about this, this, you know, tragic killer, pancreatic cancer. We all know it because it's the dreaded diagnosis the mortality rate is very high and we haven't been able to really move the needle like we have with a lot of other cancers. So it's pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma uh, that we're talking about here. It's one of the leadest, leading causes of cancer death worldwide. And as I said, we, we haven't really moved the needle. Um, in terms of the origin, these PDACs, we call them pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, they're derived from epithelial cells in the exocrine pancreas, right? And within the exocrine pancreas, there's essentially two populations of cells that are lineage restricted, the acinar cells and the ductal cells. 
All right. And so when you look at uh, the PDACs, the, the cancers, they look ductal, right? And when you look at their origins, they often come from these pre-invasive uh, uh, pancreatic neoplasms um, that also have a ductal identity. But in spite of that, uh, there's been some genetic studies using mouse that suggests that the PDACs and these pre-PDAC uh, neoplasms that they arise from the Asner compartment, right? And also uh, there's studies using mouse as well as human organoids um, showing that if you tweak them genetically, you know, to induce the cancer, get these precancerous mutations that uh, you'll get um, from ductal organoids that you can get uh, a, a, uh, a uh, PDAC or precancerous uh, neoplasm, right? So there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, there's a ductal origin of these cells. And there's also competing evidence that say they're coming from the Asner um, compartment. All right, now in parallel, uh, it's also well known that the, what drives these tumors is telomerase, right? Telomerase is important for self renewal. We all know about this. Um, and in the pancreas, telomerase is really restricted to, um, well, it's generally restricted to stem progenitor cells, but in, in the pancreas, when you see it upregulated, it usually um, coincides with PDAC. You know, it's not usually up except when you see this transformation, right? So this is a story from Stephen Artandi, who is at Stanford. And their goal was to really settle the, 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 the question here of what, what are the origins and what is the mechanism by which these PDACs arrive, arise. And what they showed is by um, manipulating TERT signaling, uh, they showed that there's a, a very rare population of uh, TERT positive acinar cells um, in the pancreas. They're dispersed throughout the exocrine compartment. Uh, and these, what they do normally in normal physiology is that they renew the pancreas uh, by form, forming these kind of clonal um, expansion of acinar cells. And if you mutate KRAS uh, in those cells, you can get transdifferentiation to these pre-malignant um, or pre-invasive neoplasms in the pancreas. And this mechanistically involves RAS signaling and ERK. And then finally, uh, Artandi's group, they showed that in a clinically relevant context in actual human neoplasms of the pancreas, you see that there are these rare acinar cells that are phospho-ERK positive. So it looks like they're in the midst of this malignant transformation involving KRAS. So all in all, I think it's really, you know, drilling down on what's the cell of origin of physiological renewal within the pancreas. But I think more importantly, about how you get this clonal expansion in the context of KRAS mutation and TERT expression uh, that leads to this malignancy, uh, thereby providing both a molecular target as well as a cellular target uh, that we may be able to uh, use with either a pharmacological paradigm or as we were just kind of alluding to using a T cells um, to perhaps target these aberrant cells um, in, in patients. Yeah, I think this is a really big deal and a pretty high profile paper as a result of some of these amazing findings. You know, as we've 
alluded to, pancreatic cancer is just so devastating. It's got a very, very high mortality rate. And to me, as somebody who's not involved in the field, I actually find it quite surprising that we didn't know perhaps this particular mechanism until now. Maybe it's a combination of the, the new technologies that are emerging that allow us to kind of interrogate these the cells of origins for these cancers. But I guess the other thing is, and I don't know much about pancreatic cancer and the mechanisms of how it arises, is it really quite homogenous in that way in terms of narrowing down the particular cell of origin? Like, do we know that it's these Asner cells that are doing the deed or can pancreatic cancer perhaps be more heterogeneous in that way? I'm asking you and, and you're not necessarily an expert in this topic either, but what do you think? I mean, I still think can cancer itself, in my opinion, there's no two types of cancer, no two cancers that are identical, right? And although this is an amazing finding, how applicable would it be across the board? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, I mean, I wouldn't say that it is a big high profile paper in nature. And I think because they appended there that this is something that doesn't just happen in experimental context, but it's also been noted in real life in these neoplasms. So yes, I think that it can cause cancer. Can we say that it, it, it is the only way or it is the way that the majority of pancreatic neoplasms arise? I would say no, but I think maybe in support of that idea, and I don't know why, it's just my intuition, but just the, the fact that it's been so, so difficult um, to address this, this disease and the mortality is so high, I don't know why, but it makes me think that it's just this one mechanism that we, we, we can't break through, or at least that's that the hopeful part of me says that maybe it's just because we haven't gotten around to this cell. We haven't observed it or found a, a means to, uh, to uh, target it yet. And maybe this will be the breakthrough moment. Hey, maybe five years from now, we'll have our pancreatic cancer survival on the order of leukemic uh, survival and you know, 80, 90%. We can keep our fingers crossed for that, although I'm not holding my breath. Maybe Arun, instead of asking me, who's not a cancer person, we should ask our guest, okay? She knows what she's talking about. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Are your eyes tired from counting hematopoietic colonies? Let STEM Vision do the work for you. Achieve fully automated imaging and standardized counting of human or mouse hematopoietic CFU assays. Find out more by visiting www.stemcell.com slash STEM Vision. STEM Vision, sorry. I mean, that would have saved me like a lot of weekends, Arun. I spent a lot of time going blind counting colonies. Uh, gosh, the kids these days, they don't know what it took to get to this point. But uh, I know one person who does, and that's Dr. Jennifer Trowbridge. She's taken a, a long, although high road. You know, you would think that she didn't have much trouble getting here with all her outside success, but it hasn't been easy, people. Let's hear from her right now. All right, my fellows, this episode, we have with us a special guest, Dr. Jennifer Trowbridge who is associate professor at the Jackson Laboratory, also adjunct faculty at Tufts, which is where they get their grad students and postdocs. In case you were wondering, they just started a joint program in genetics and the first MD-PhD cohort is coming soon. Jen has got a ton of grant money. So all you trainees out there, um, you may wanna look into that. But getting on with the show, Dr. Trowbridge researches 
the regulation of stem cells in the blood in normal development, aging, and leukemic transformation. Her lab's ultimate goal is to reveal epigenetic patterns and processes that are uniquely deregulated during aging and or transformation, which can be used to identify novel biomarkers of disease and targets for development of therapeutics. Dr. Trobich, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Trowbridge. And let's jump right into it. So let's start off by discussing your lab's really recent cell stem cell paper, which I think is super exciting. You actually showed that a decline in IGF-1 in the bone, bone marrow microenvironment is initiating the aging of hematopoietic stem cells. And this is something that we've talked about a, a decent amount on the show, stem cell aging and ways to reverse it. It's become a pretty major topic as of late. And it's even caught the attention of the general public in some circumstances, right? We actually covered a paper a few weeks ago that was focusing on the importance of another growth factor in VEGF in regulating aging. But here you actually showed that it's the microenvironment that's really critical in regulating the, the aging process of HSCs. And in some situations, you could even reverse that aging process and aging phenotypes by kind of manipulating IGF signaling, right? So let's talk a little bit about this work and how we might be able to even harness some of these mechanisms to reverse HSC aging. Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, this was work that we uh, really started out in, in trying to take a step back and think about the process of stem cell aging in the context of the hematopoietic system and what was known at the time. And you know, we started this work six, seven years ago. I mean, this is a long haul project. Uh, and when we first started the work, we, we quickly realized that it, most of the literature had done a binary comparison between young and old individuals. And we thought that doesn't really tell us, you know, while that tells us a lot about the biology that's relevant to extreme aging, if you will, it doesn't really give us any sense of the dynamics. And we also had in the back of our minds, this sort of chicken and egg question, what ages first, the stem cells or the environment? Uh, and, and so we had planned out uh, way back then, so a couple of different studies, a couple of different approaches to take. One was really a cross-sectional study to try to ask, you know, at what age in between young mice and old mice, do we start to observe alterations in stem cell function and potency and those kind of questions? And then at that point in time, at that age, whatever age it may be, is it really because the stem cells have you know, accumulated DNA damage or somatic mutations or epigenetic alterations that enforce this program? Or is it because there have already been alterations accumulating in the environment around them that have selected for a certain population of stem cells that may have uh, you know, reduced functionality or different potency than they do in young animals? So that's really where we started all of this work. And, and that approach led us to identify IGF-1. To be honest with you, when I first saw the data that supported IGF-1 being a major driver of this process, I thought, oh no, like, oh God, you know, everyone thinks they already know everything about this molecule. It's been studied for decades and decades. Like that, I wanted, honestly, it's much easier to study something new than it is to study something that people already have very strong preconceived notions of the function and the role of, the, of this molecule. So, uh, you know, but we, of course, being scientists, we go where the data 
tells us to go. And, and that was the molecule um, that we needed to pursue. It was our top candidate. And so we did all of the, you know, mouse model genetic knockout studies and the, you know, putting back in the molecule and, you know, injecting it in or stimulating the cells with IGF-1 and, and all of that work really led to, to our findings that this is a major player in this process. And it worked in the opposite direction to what we would have predicted, I would say. Um, so, you know, decline of IGF-1 is supposed to be good for a lifespan and um, good for longevity and animals with less IGF-1 live longer. Um, but we found that that reduction in IGF-1 does select for a certain population of stem cells that aren't as robust, particularly at giving rise to the adaptive immune system, giving rise to B cells and T cells, which is really important for functionality of our immune systems and is a major issue in aging. I mean, even now, you know, very, very recently, um, I would say major um, consideration has come into efficacy of vaccination in elderly populations, you know, talking about COVID vaccines and things like that, you know, immune systems in the context of aging just aren't as resilient and as robust. Um, and so we think IGF-1 is, you know, at least in part responsible for that um, issue. Um, and of course, you know, I have to say that most of the work we've done has been in mice and we're at the Jackson labs and that all makes sense. Um, but I think that there will be a very important role for uh, doing a, a comparison of, of our findings to what is observed in humans in the context of aging. And that's, you know, something we're pursuing in collaboration with a few different groups. Yeah. You said it, you're at the right place to do all that heavy lifting in the mouse. Uh, mm -hmm. and it was a, a real heavy lift. Um, but Hey, at the end of the day, you had a, a big story and it was certainly worth it, but you met, you said it, it it's now we're waiting to see about the human, um, and clinical relevance of that. And of course, that's what we're all in it for. Right. And, and it's particularly, uh, when it comes to aging, the search for a silver bullet to stall or reverse, the onslaught and deterioration that comes with aging. Um, it's as old as medicine, right? But it's really tough. It's a tough nut to crack. Uh, and ultimately, I think it's going to be very specific for each tissue or organ, right? I mean, everybody wants it to be like red wine or resveratrol or whatever. But I think that, you know, you got to look at each niche. Um, and, and you're certainly doing that for the hematopoietic system. But you said also that IGF, you know, everyone thought it was low and it turns out the high is the benefit, but it's, it's like that with IGF, right? Because it's so ubiquitous and, and with something like aging or, or IGF and relevance to aging and growth, it's so baked in to, you know, our whole life cycle at so many points. So you got to be, of course, mindful of any kind of unintended consequences of, of uh, uh, clinical medical hack, right? Um, and of course, you know, you don't get out of bed, I'm sure in the morning without thinking about safety, that's the number one prerequisite to any kind of clinical application of IGF, but just talk us through it, like theoretically or practically someone who's really gone to the, you know, to the, to the bones on IGF, what, what are we worried about? What might we anticipate if you're thinking about pathological consequences of IGF or other therapeutics that may be used to augment the endogenous stem cell pool? Yeah, that's great. I, I think the the number one thing that jumps to mind, and I'm sure this is on most people's mind in this area, is cancer, right? So the same fuel that fuels stem cell function 
can also fuel, you know, transformed stem cell function, cancer stem cells or cancer growth. Um, and, and do we really understand enough about the differences between what boosts normal stem cell function and what might boost tumor stem cell function mm. to be able to be selective? And so I think certainly, you know, administering recombinant IGF-1 to a person is not a good idea. Mm. <laughs> Systemically, that is a really bad idea. That being said, I mean, I think there are some growth hormone um, deficient uh, genetic conditions where people do need uh, supplementation of things like you know, growth hormone or IGF um, in order to you know, overcome those you know, um, uh, genetic conditions or to, to treat some of those genetic conditions. But that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about in the context of, of aging. Um, so yeah, I think going after the molecule itself, and I would be also pretty skeptical of any strategy that was similar to that, just sort of gross systemic administration of a growth factor. Like that's, um, doesn't seem particularly specific or targeted enough, um, for me to feel comfortable that that's going to avoid harm and avoid side effects that are, you know, have, would have serious consequences. Um, so then if not that, then what, right. Um, I think, you know, going for things that are perhaps downstream of those pathways uh, that might act in a more targeted or regulatable manner. You know, we are now thinking a lot about metabolism and metabolic regulation, which is clearly downstream of IGF-1, but perhaps there are ways to target certain, you know, metabolic regulation or, or um, uh, parts of uh, different metabolic cycles that would be distinct between what normal stem cells require and what might fuel growth of cancer cells. I don't know that that's, you know, for sure different, but, but that's something that we're actively um, working towards to see if that could be something. The other thing, which is a lot more challenging to think about, but I think is tempting to speculate on is whether there's ways to target the microenvironment. So whether there's ways to either, you know, sustain cell populations that exist in the vicinity of metapoietic stem cells that maintain that, that population in a sort of healthy, youthful state um, that naturally decline in aging. We don't know why they decline in aging and why they're replaced with things like adipocytes, for example. Um, but if there was a way to uh, better preserve um, the structure and integrity and, and populations of cells, in the microenvironment, in the context of aging, then you're really, you know, you're really, um, you know, maintaining a nice environment for those uh, stem cells to live in, um, normal hematopoietic stem cells to live in. Yeah, it's such a tricky question. And IGF is it's such a powerful molecule, even in the context of the work that I do. Um, it's it has cardioprotective effects. It's known to protect different organs. Uh, so people have thought about using it in that way, but of course, grow systemic administration of IGF, as you had mentioned, is a bit of an issue and can lead to even oncogenic phenotypes. Um, but speaking of cancer, you know, something that you know a little bit about is clonal hematopoiesis. And that's, in fact, a favorite topic of Daylon's. Uh, it's an it's an age-dependent process, so it's where age-dependent somatic mutations can arise in different subsets of HSCs, right? And some of these mutations can lead to cancerous phenotypes. So you've shown, interestingly enough, that 
its epigenetic regulators that are perhaps the most common genetic drivers of oncogenesis in HSCs, right? So you've focused a lot of your work on one particular molecule, DNMT3A, which is a, a DNA methyltransferase, and its role in actually driving some of these oncogenic phenotypes. So tell us a little bit more about that, you know, this particular work about on clonopoiesis and what you've learned about the power of these epigenetic modifiers and actually driving these oncogenic phenotypes. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I would say that the whole field, like this whole area, and, and um, while that conceptually has been around for a long time, practically speaking, like the identification of these somatic mutations, as you said, that are really the major drivers of clonal hematopoiesis have only really been, you know, um, people have been working on them for the last, you know, five, six years, something like that. I mean, it's really not that much time. And I would say on the whole, we have a very, very little understanding of really how those mutations are affecting uh, hematopoietic stem cell potency and exactly why and how they give stem cells a selective advantage in the context of aging. Uh, so the, one of the approaches that we're taking in my lab, and as you mentioned, we, we have focused on one of the clonal hematopoiesis mutations, in fact, the most common clonal hematopoiesis mutation, which is in the DNA methyltransferase, DNMT3A, uh, the approach we're taking is really to pay a lot, a lot of attention to context in terms of aging. And we have seen firsthand in our lab that that actually matters quite a lot. So what the uh, changes that you see in hematopoietic stem cells with this mutation in young animals or in the context of young mice is quite distinct from an aging context where you see those mutations can confer a selective advantage to the hematopoietic stem cell population. And we think that that's due to a, at least a couple of things. One is that as you age, as, and as we've talked about, the natural hematopoietic stem cell function declines. So the presence of these mutations seems to be helping to confer some additional plasticity or potency or youthful function to those hematopoietic stem cells. And so while that may not confer an advantage to those cells in a young context, because they're surrounded by other you know, very highly functional hematopoietic stem cells, it's, it's in the aging context when all of the function of their neighbors starts to decline that they can really realize that potential um, and, and start to accumulate. Uh, the other major change that we're focused on that we think is very interesting is changes in the microenvironment and how that selection pressure in, in aging um, will select differentially for stem cells carrying these mutations. So why and how epigenetic regulation plays a part in this is still a huge black box in the field. Um, most of the studies so far, particularly studying the DNMT3A mutation, have found you know, really nothing that correlates well between DNA methylation changes, gene expression changes, and function. It, so that, you know, the obvious thing to go after was, you know, how, how did DNA methylation patterns change in these stem cells? And, and that must be the answer because this is a DNA methyltransferase, uh, but it's not, at least it's not in a, in a straightforward or, or simple way, um, doesn't explain it. So, you know, we're uh, sort of taking a step back as we often do in my lab uh, to sort of question our assumptions and say, okay, what, 
what are we not seeing here? Like wh what is the variable or what are the variables that we can test in a slightly less biased way? Um, so we're now, you know, using approaches like attack seek or open chromatin profiling, we're looking or 3D chromatin structure, we're looking at things a bit more broadly to say, okay, maybe our assumptions about DNA methylation don't hold true. But if we take a step back and look at chromatin regulation a bit more broadly, you know, maybe there's some answers there. Um, we're also doing things like um, more whole genome CRISPR screens or targeted CRISPR screens, like taking, uh, you know, a, a bit more of an unbiased approach um, to really try to figure out the biology that underlines the clonal advantage. Yes, this clonal hematopoiesis. I mean, Arun says it's, it's a favorite of mine. I'm doing air quotes, but um, I, I don't think that captures it. I, I wish I'd never learned about it. And I, I'm in dread about clonal hematopoiesis because, you know, it seeded this idea in my mind that all the time there's inflammatory stimuli that are nucleating clonal mutagenesis all day, every day in all my cells that turn over. But that's like my neurosis, obviously. But in all seriousness, I do wonder whether we need to be more careful in considering the the clinical implications of mutagenesis in all ex vivo cultured cell products, right? So there's a lot of trials for like ex vivo expansion of umbilical cord blood. Like that's, I mean, I almost like ready for prime time, I would say. Um, not to mention the entire field of cell-based regenerative medicine is largely predicated on the idea of mobilizing and expanding cells outside the body um deriving not mobilizing necessarily versus mobilizing endogenous right so talk me off the ledge here am i overestimating the risks of this kind of future of of in vitro cultured cells uh vis-a-vis -vis, um like you know safety or are there are safeguards that inevitably that we can can kind of surmount the risk there yeah well i i think that um the context matters. That's the, the first thing I'll say. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think you can definitely take a healthy step back from the ledge. I mean, think <laughs> about how many decades have people been receiving bone marrow transplant? Mm. Just as an example, I know those aren't necessarily ex vivo culture products, but, you know, transfer of cells from one human to another. And, you know, those people are not all walking around developing blood cancers or cardiovascular disease to our knowledge, at least. Um, so I, I think that there are situations where you likely want to screen for certain mutations and abundance of certain mutations, but I don't know that the clonal hematopoiesis mutations yet warrant that level of screening. Uh, it, the, most people can have and sustain clonal hematopoiesis into their 90s or into, you know, you know, people that live to 100 and above and are fine. Um, perfectly See, Arun, healthy. what were you so worried about, Arun? So Settle worried. down. Yeah. Well, at least one we of us. We just don't is, know. 
<laughs> right. Well, at least you convinced Dalon to step back from the ledge. So that, that's a good thing. <laughs> right. So let's shift gears a little bit away from the science and talk more about actually the people in your lab, because I, I think this is something that we really need to highlight. And I, I'm really excited to highlight this. I was looking at your lab website and the composition of your lab is pretty amazing. If I, if I do say so, it's almost all scientists who actually identify as women. And that's certainly these days a bit of a rarity and perhaps in the future is going to become more and more and more common, right? Perhaps one day in the future, this is going to be a common reality and maybe not as much of an outlier, right? And we certainly do have a long way to go in leveling the playing field and ensuring gender equity in biomedical research, but we'd love to get your perspectives as the leader of a lab that's predominantly women on how you run your lab and how you decide to hire who you do. And in general, how we as a field, the stem cell field can do better to actually promote the careers and the development of women scientists? That's a really great question. And it is true uh, for the moment and um, for the past couple of years, uh, my lab has been predominantly women. Right now, I think it's 100% uh, female. Uh, and that was not by design. Uh, so I, I don't... Um, you know, it's something that I, I think, you know, being a female principal investigator, uh, that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm early middle age. <laughs> I myself have three young kids. I've had two of those children since I started my independent lab as an assistant professor. So I, I do think that when grad students and postdocs uh, you know, who are in the similar stage of life or who may be, uh, you know, identify with this situation at a personal level, see what I'm doing and see the success that my lab has had, um, you know, with these other variables included, uh, they really see me, I think, as a role model for, for how they might be able to manage uh, sort of a similar thing in their own lives. Uh, I also think that we, you know, my, my strategy for, for running my lab and what I really try to foster among the group is, a, is, is certainly one of inclusivity, but also one that's very teamwork oriented. So, you know, uh, we tend to pursue projects as a team as much as possible. And of course, each individual postdoc and grad student has their own like identifiable project, um, but a lot of the hands-on work and support for getting the experiments done, especially large experiments or complex experiments will come from you know, the support network that we've set up in the lab from other individuals or, or research assistants or core facilities, things like that. So I, I pay a lot of attention to that kind of thing to make sure that people can um, you know, have, have the best chances possible of achieving their own personal goals while still, you know, inside of lab and outside of lab at the same time. Um, and so we, I regularly have those conversations with people in my lab um, to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, you know, foster their scientific success while supporting um, their activities outside of lab. So it's, it certainly um, uh, requires a lot more you know, hands-on effort to achieve that. You know, I can't just sort of let everybody do their thing in the lab and, and check in with them, you know, a couple of times a year. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, you have to be very active and proactive. 
Um, so I think in terms of, uh, you know, fostering women in science, I would say you're just giving people as many opportunities as possible, um, which is something I, you know, I try to do within my lab. So giving the trainees opportunities to give talks in my place or to put them up for awards or put them up for, you know, various things to kind of get them, get them out there and, and get their science out there. Um, and then I think another really important part is to make sure that the, you know, infrastructure and resources are in place to support people at different stages of their lives, whether that be through paid parental leave, which I think shouldn't be maternity leave. I think it should be equally accessible to men and women and whoever, um, whoever would like to, to take a leave uh, should be able to do that and should that should be paid. And then I think also access to, you know, high quality childcare that's accessible um, for everybody is really, really important. And so these are things that I'm strongly advocating for within our institution to make sure that those things are um, put into place and expanded upon and um, easily accessible to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 so my lab's not as large as yours, but um, I work with all women as well. I'm the only male and it's totally chill, very little conflict, a group, group dynamic, collective ambition. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's small. Maybe it's the gender thing. Um, maybe I'm an exceptional leader. I don't know. We do the math. But um, I, I have uh, also experienced personally and heard a lot. Everybody's heard about the, the contrasting element there with that whole, you know, labs where it's kind of a kill or be killed ethos and, and like deliberately kind of like, well, this is it. You know, this is a training ground for the harsh reality of running your own research program in a highly competitive field like stem cell research. Like that's the line. And, and I think, you know, trainees are kind of being taught this in some places. Um, but you're operating at that lofty echelon and competitive field, stem cell, blah, 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 big papers, big grants. Um, and you trained with Mickey Batia, Stu Orkin, big names uh, with big labs doing big science. Um, so tell us, I mean, you clearly, I don't know that you're doing something different or the same, but tell us uh, what you, you took from those mentored experiences into your own lab and what would you emphasize for someone starting their own lab? It's what's the most important thing that they can do for their science. Arun is starting his own lab pretty soon. What Congratulations. That's thing exciting. You Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, th that's, uh, yeah, those are all really, really good questions, really big questions. Um, so I think I, I, you know, back in graduate school, I, I I don't know about most people, but I would say for myself, I was pretty naive and I was also a huge nerd. So I didn't really do anything outside of lab. Like I don't remember having much of a, you know, well-rounded life. I think I was just like, science is cool. And uh, I, you know, felt awkward talking to people I didn't know. So I just spent all my time in lab. Uh, with the people I didn't know. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, I, I did finish my PhD in four years um, with some great papers and I, that's probably, you know, a big, a big reason why, but I wouldn't say that that was, you know, the happiest time in my life or the healthiest time in my life. Um, but I think that with age comes perspective about, you know, what you really want out of life. And I think that, you know, going through a postdoc, um, was very, very helpful. But, you know, a lot of that, I, I wouldn't say I had someone 
to mentor me through that process. It was more like, you know, you figure it out as you go along and realize that, you know, if you want to have a family and spend time with that family, that you have to strike a balance between, you know, what you need to do in lab. And so I, I was just resourceful, right? I, I wrote grants, no one told me to, but I wrote grants so that I could have money to hire a technician so that I didn't have to be the one always genotyping every single mouse in my entire colony. You know what I mean? So you just figure out ways and, and watch the way other people operate and get ideas from other people and think, you know, oh, maybe that, you know, that would work for me a little bit better than my current situation. So let's try it. But also recognizing that, you know, a bunch of the stuff that you try to do isn't going to work. And then you just, you know, I, I guess with perspective, what I've learned is not to become too stressed out by any one thing. I mean, things, so there's always things that are not as good as you wish they were. And there's always things that are probably better than you expected they would be. And that's always true. I, I think it's true at every level. I think it's going to be true for me for the rest of my career. I'm never going to reach a point at which everything is awesome. And I feel like I have absolutely no stress and, you know, I figured it all out. I just don't think that that's real. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I've learned to, to, to stress less about the little stuff and think about the long game. Think about, you know, all of the things that you've had to overcome to get to where you are now. And if you've done it and you've gotten to this point, you know, the, the, you know, if you're, if we're predicting the future based on the past, you're good, right? Like you did it. So you just do it again. And then you do it again, then you do it again. And you know, the, the challenges change and the, the targets change, but you got to this point. I feel like, yeah, it's going to be okay. That's, that's my general philosophy. It's going to be okay. Have you ever thought about giving a TED talk, Dr. Trowbridge? No, I never. <laughs> I think that would be a fantastic future step for you. I got to say, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm inspired. I must Thanks. say, I've been furiously scribbling notes here, just getting inspiration for my own, you know, soon to be lab. So thank you for the advice. I really appreciate that. But you're right. I mean, there's a bunch of different variables that contribute to success. It's, you know, a combination of mentorship, having the right funding to do the things you want to do, and also the environment right? You've been fortunate to train in these incredible environments, and you are currently also at an amazing environment in the Jackson Lab. Uh, and it's located just outside of beautiful Bar Harbor, Maine, which is I've, I've actually been to a few years ago. Uh, we had Dr. Martin Para, who's your next door neighbor, I believe, uh, professor at Jax a few months ago on the show, and he described the facility and the surrounding area as kind of a scientific and even an environmental paradise. And having been up there, I can attest to that. I had, like I mentioned, I have a good fortune of visiting Bar Harbor and driving by the Jackson Labs a few years ago. And I'm still in awe of the hikes I did on Mount Desert Island, the beautiful scenery, the peace, the tranquility. And this is coming from somebody who's living in LA. So I'm telling you, this is so important to me, I got to say. But in addition to that amazing scenery, the natural beauty, all that good stuff, Jax is, of course, a scientific powerhouse. We know it perhaps first and foremost as a place where all of, all of our mice strains come from, right? So it's a wonderful combination for recruiting new faculty, I'm sure, this combination of a beautiful environment, powerful science. So tell us about why you picked Jax to actually start your lab and what you actually love about working there and living in the area. And if you could give a pitch to folks you want to recruit, grad students, postdocs, what would it be? 
Nice. I love it. Uh, so I would say um, the reason I came to Jax to start my lab, and as you had mentioned, I, I did my postdoc in Boston. Um, I'm actually originally Canadian, which you probably also gained from where I trained <laughs> when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't you know, necessarily looking to stay in the US. I, I took a pretty broad approach to uh, applying for any and every faculty position I thought I might be eligible for across the US and Canada when I was finishing up my postdoc. I figured, you know, yeah, there's not too many interviews, like it'll be fine. Um, I did a lot of interviews, so maybe there is such a thing as too many interviews. Uh, but what I, you know, what I ended up falling out on or, or the major deciding factors for me, honestly, it, it's somewhat of a gut feeling. Um, so I'll say I'll, I'll recount my experience here when I came here to interview and I arrived and, you know, I gave my seminar to a packed auditorium. Um, everyone that I could see and make eye contact with throughout the talk was alert awake, uh, engaged, nodding. There was a lot of nodding, a lot of smiles. Um, and at the end, we went about 15 minutes over with questions mm -hmm. from the audience, from students, from trainees, from faculty. Um, and then, you know, a few hours later, I had a Chuck talk where I went into a much, much smaller room with just the Jack's faculty. And it was, you know, maybe 20 people or so. And the entire time, um, it, the conversation is best described as dynamic. I mean, it was questions and ideas and it did not feel in any way like an interrogation. It felt like a conversation. And I could, the, the excitement about what I was talking about was palpable to the audience. I mean, or, or from the audience back to me, people were so excited and, and even making you know, perhaps better arguments than I was making for why the research I was pitching to them was going to be valuable and transformative for the fields. And that feels incredible. Like when you have an opportunity to have that interaction, I would say it's, it's rare. It's a gem um, that most of the time that does not happen. And so I left my interview with a sense of, wow, you know, I would love to recreate that scenario on a regular basis. Like that is why we do what we do, right? Is to hope in the hopes of having those kind of interactions with other scientists. And then the other, the more practical consideration for, for coming to um, Jax to start my lab was I felt that the resources in place here in terms of not just the startup, like startups are pretty similar in most places, give or take. Um, so here that, that was all good but the resources they had in place in terms of a mentoring committee for junior faculty, in terms of intensive grant writing support, in terms of, you know, I have a financial analyst that I meet with regularly. I have an administrative assistant that does a lot of, you know, the administrative things for me. Uh, I have a, there's an internal study section that meets and, and reviews my grants before they go out. Um, for external, um, you know, review. And the core facilities are phenomenal here as well. So it just felt like a small community where everybody had my back and everybody was working toward me being successful. And the assumption is that you will be successful. 
you know, it's not a, um, we're going to throw 10 people in this position and two are going to make it and the other eight, you know, good luck to you. And, and that is a scenario that I've, you know, heard of from other colleagues in other places that that can happen. So here, I think the recruiting is very focused, very targeted. You know, there, there aren't so many new faculty at any given time. It's, you know, a couple a year, but the, the effort is so intensive on supporting those individuals and getting them to where they need to be in terms of their own goals and, and success for their lab. So that's the kind of environment I think personally, I really thrive in. Um, in terms of this living in this place, you're right, it's beautiful. There's, you know, the national park is most of the island and I live, you know, in the shadow of a mountain where the ocean is, you know, um, a short walk away. Like it's, it's amazing. And, um, and that, you know, that's to me, it's a bonus. It's not a reason to live here. It's, it's just a huge, huge bonus in terms of being able to get out and get into nature. And that's such a, you know, stress reliever to just take a walk in the woods or take a dip in the ocean. It's pretty awesome. Wow. I mean, the way you describe it, scientific paradise, you got everything, you got what you need and uh, a nice setting to boot. Um, I'll have to come check it out. Arun, next time you're on this side of uh, the country, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll visit Jackson Labs. I've always wanted to see it. Um, but that's it for uh, the main part of our interview. Jen, we're going to go to the uh, couple of science peripheral questions. Thank you though so much for sharing your thoughts. We just got a couple more that you're going to have to do. First is, uh, what's one hobby that you always wanted to pursue, but were never able to? I love this question. So uh, something that I had done when I was young um, through high school and a little bit in university, and then, you know, you just have less and less time to pursue hobbies as you get older, especially when you have three kids like I do. Um, but it was uh, fashion design. Hmm. So I used to, when I was in high school, I would design and like, sew all of my own clothes, except for jeans, because making jeans is just a pain in the butt. But you know, in terms of like uh, jackets and dresses and, and, you know, really cool stuff. And I loved it. And it was so much fun. Um, and I still like, I still own a sewing machine and it is still in my basement. And now I just use it to like put patches on kids' snow pants, which is totally lame. Um, and, and I really, really wish uh, that I had the ability to pursue that, that hobby because it, it's so fun. Oh, well, I would love to see you on Halloween. It's coming up. Can't you go crazy for your kids' costumes? That's a great idea. <laughs> there we go. Um, next, last, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not? Yeah, that this is a really good one. And I, I think it's something that we've actually already touched on, which is just that, you know, that that sense that there will always be things that you're not you know, necessarily thrilled about, um, professionally, personally, like these things sort of come up and then they go away and, or, you know, you move through them and you, you find a new normal or a new space or new calibration. So the, the less you can become preoccupied with each one of those stress points, and the more you can keep flowing through it all, 
uh, you know, that the generally happier you will be <laughs> as a person. And I think this is true, you know, um, and, and true in science and, and true outside of science as well. And it's something that's, you know, it's a continual goal. You know, I would say I'm, I'm getting better at it. I'm not awesome at it there. I lose plenty of sleep at night over little things that shouldn't bother me. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like taking a step back and gaining that greater perspective is really, really important. And I would say over the past year or two, you know, with seeing all of the, you know, COVID and, and other things happening in the world and this awful, awful situations that people are in, you know, you just gain such appreciation and, um, uh, you know, just think I'm so grateful for all of the amazing things that I get to do every day and the place that I get to live in and the experiences I get to have. And, you know, so what if your paper doesn't get accepted at the journal you wanted it to be at, you know, like sometimes taking, you know, taking a broader perspective is really healthy and really important for general, um, well-being. Yes. I mean, I know I, I speak for Arun that we, are very lucky to do what we do aren't we yeah and we have such wonderful lives and i mean i wouldn't trade it so yes you talked me off a ledge and now i'm circling back and looking at how my how great my life is as a scientist and not only that the whole description of jackson labs as a scientific paradise you should know guys jackson labs it's only type of its kind um but there's a lot of uh kind of institutes that have been tried to that have tried to form in that template uh it's small but also huge you get all your mice there but also 500 million over 500 million in revenue um 70 percent of that comes from sales of mice also government philanthropic funding but now i see how well they're using it over there by recruiting and uh, conducting the best scientists um, thank you so much for telling us about your scientific journey your experience at Jackson and all of that, you really should give a TED talk. We're gonna send this to the selection committee and expect an email, all right? Thanks so much, you guys. This has been great, so fun. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode number 202. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Join us again in a couple weeks. <laughs>